This is Guns and Butter. Two professors um, up in Scotland uh, did a uh, from Chatham House did a study when they actually looked over in detail over the official vote results, and they pointed out that um, for Ahmadinejad to have uh, sustained his massive victory in one third of Iran's provinces, he would have had to have carried all his supporters, all new voters, all voters who previously had voted for centrists, and about 44 percent of the previous reformist voters. A physical impossibility. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Reese Ehrlich. Today's show, Eyewitness Iran. Reese Ehrlich is a full-time print and broadcast freelance reporter. He reports regularly for CBC, ABC Australia, Radio Deutsche Welle, and National Public Radio. His articles appear in the San Francisco Chronicle and the Dallas Morning News. He taught journalism for 10 years at San Francisco State University and California State University Hayward. Reese Ehrlich is author of The Iran Agenda, The Real Story of U.S. Policy and the Middle East Crisis, and co-author of Target Iraq, What the News Media Didn't Tell You. His latest book is Dateline Havana, The Real Story of U.S. Policy and the Future of Cuba. Foreign correspondent Reese Ehrlich, just returned from Iran where he covered the recent elections, spoke at the Peninsula Peace and Justice Center on July 17, 2009. Reese Ehrlich. Uh, I was in Iran as a, a foreign correspondent. I went there for CBC and various other uh, international and national media. I uh, got my journalist visa for 10 days. And I don't know if you know, but those of you who travel in the Middle East might know this. There's now direct nonstop flights from San Francisco to Dubai. And then there's a short hop to Iran from there. That's the good news. The bad news is it's 16 hours. So, 16 hours, five movies, and quite a few cups of coffee later, I, I, I landed in Tehran, rather whacked out, uh, got in something like three in the morning, and uh, uh, got a little bit of sleep, but by that evening, I got a call from a friend, Mani Hagigi, he's a film director, those of you who are running uh, might know some of his work, uh, and he said, you've got to come out um, every night, there's these spontaneous campaign events that are taking place all over Tehran, and you've got to go see it. So I said, sure. My body clock was all whacked out anyway. So around 1 in the morning, I took off from my hotel in a taxi. And we were going towards Banak Square, which is one of the major center parts of of Tehran. And by the time, there's a freeway that takes you up to there. And like a couple miles before you got to the Banak Square exit, it was completely clogged in both directions. I mean, imagine 101 being completely backed up from here down to, I don't know, San Jose or something, or partway down to San Jose. It gives you an idea. And everybody's honking their horns and waving green um, flags for support of uh, Musa, the reformist candidate. So immediately, I realized I wasn't in Kansas anymore. Uh, I realized, because I had covered the 2005 elections, and there were some spontaneous uh, uh, street rallies at that time, people driving around in cars, etc. But this was something very different. Uh, and before I could even get to off the freeway, I got a call from Mani saying, uh, you don't come because the police have broken it up with tear gas. So this was days before the election even started, before any of the current things that we now know have happened. 
is that the, uh, basically the Ahmadinejad people were attacking the Musavi supporters and the police were coming in on the side of the Ahmadinejad people. And it was reported somewhat, I think Iranians here might have heard about it, but for most Americans it didn't even make it uh, to the evening news. But the turmoil was very great and you could see it. A couple days later, I was going out with another actor, Hedya uh, Tehrani, who is known as the Marilyn Monroe of Iran. Uh, again, those of you who are Iranian know the name immediately. Um, I actually stayed over her, at her house, and the good news was I slept in Hedya Tehrani's bed. Incredible. Uh, the bad news is that she slept on the couch. Now, when I tell that joke to my wife, I reverse it, and I say the good news was she was on the couch. All right. So one night we went and we did the same thing. We went out to, uh, she just decided to go out um, and show her support for the reformist uh, forces. And we went out again like two in the morning, um, met up with some people, and went around a thousand, probably tens of thousands of people. Now some of them were Ahmadinejad supporters in small knots. Some were Karubi supporters, who was the other reformist candidate. But the vast majority were Musavi, and you can tell immediately because everybody had colors and, and chanting and you know had their own chants and so on. And uh, it was at that point it was largely kind of you could tell middle class, upper middle class students, intellectuals, well to do because you could tell by the cars they were driving and the clothing that they were wearing and so on. Um, the hijab was almost gone. That shows you how far the people were, and that's pretty daring in Iran because under other circumstances, the Basiji, these right-wing uh, militia thugs uh, who are affiliated with the uh, government, will come along and, and beat you or arrest you if they consider that your hair is not sufficiently covered or if you're a man with too long a hair or not enough beard or whatever. They just make an arbitrary decision. So the idea that women were, were not wearing anything close to the traditional hijab at these uh, spontaneous events was, was very revealing. So, um, uh, it was a real experience going out with Hedia because everybody immediately recognized her and she was a, a, an instant celebrity. People were handing her babies to kiss and, you know, have, they wanted to have uh, cell phone pictures taken with her or whatever. Uh, but uh, she, she was very principled. She did not want to go out and speak at campaign rallies. She just wanted to go out and show her support for what was going on. And that, that was replicated by film people and famous intellectuals and, and others throughout Iran. It was a real spontaneous effort and a real hatred of uh, Ahmadinejad. But I didn't restrict my time and my interviews to the people in North Tehran, which is kind of the uh, shorthand way of saying the, the well-to-do. In South Tehran, which is the working class and the poorer part of Tehran, uh, I spent time there, and as well as at the bazaar, just basically getting around to talk to ordinary people. And I, would, I always, when I travel to any country, and particularly in Iran, I always stop people at random uh, and ask them questions and, and stop a large number of people so that it's impossible for the government to determine ahead of time. You always have to have a, a government minder with you. Uh, they help set up interviews and translate, and some of them are very good individually, but they also have to write up reports about everybody that you interview so the government can keep track of you as a foreign reporter. So um, I went out into South Tehran and talked, saw people at random, and this, this was the most revealing. So there were some people who supported Ahmadinejad. There's no question about it. He did have a popular base of support. And the people would cite things like, um, he lives in a humble house, because he didn't take... Uh, uh, initially, at least, he didn't take a big fancy house. 
Um, he gave uh, uh, loans uh, for students. Uh, in Iran, you, when you get married, young couples get a subsidy. It's supposed to be a loan, but it turns out you don't really have to pay it back. And he upped the amount of the loan that they pay. So there were various kind of um, subsidies that he had provided to people, and he was uh, appreciated for that in the poor communities. Uh, on the other hand, a lot of people I stopped at random would, were complaining bitterly about the inflation because all of these subsidies that he was handing out were not accompanied by any kind of economic uh, productive activity. Uh, it was basically printing money. You know, uh, the same thing would happen here if um, President Obama simply uh, handed out cash to people on the street without anybody generating any jobs behind it, you'd simply generate inflation. And there are reasonable accounts, uh, even the central bank in Iran is saying the annual inflation rate is 23%. That's really high. And that really hits working people particularly high. So you might get a subsidy on the one hand, but it disappears on the other hand in your actual spending power. And the Iranian people are not dumb. Uh, they are very sharp and they understand that. And so there was a lot of anger at Ahmadinejad around his economic policies, high, high unemployment, etc. There was also a lot of animosity by ethnic minorities. Um, uh, you know, a lot of people think of Iran as being Persian. Well, that's the dominant ethnic group, but uh, somewhere just under half of Iran is made up of Kurds and Baluchis and Azerbaijanis and other Azeris, you know, other ethnic minorities who are Iranian but have their own language and culture and traditions. And a lot of those people did not like Ahmadinejad as well. And that was shown when Musabi campaigned in his hometown of Tabriz, which is up in the northwest of Iran and uh, among the Azeri area. Uh, and huge, huge, tens of thousands of people turned out for campaign rallies in his support. And I'll come back to that later. Remember that because uh, allegedly when the election results came out, Ahmadinejad swept Tabriz. Uh, it made no sense at all. Um, so by the time we all went to sleep on Friday night, the elections were on Friday. Friday night, the, um, uh, the polls closed. Uh, the polls were staying open. There was a record turnout, like 85% of uh, uh, eligible voters voted. Now in this country, you know, if we get somewhere over 50%, we consider that a great uh, victory for democracy, right? So imagine an 85% vote, which meant a huge number of people who had never voted before uh, came out to vote. So everybody went to sleep on uh, Friday night thinking that either Musavi would have won uh, outright or he would have uh, at least got into a runoff because in Iran, if you don't win a majority, or, you know, majority plus one, then there's a runoff, whoever the top two candidates are. So we'll come back to that in just a moment. So let me just take a moment to talk about what these different candidates represented. Um, both candidates, Ahmadinejad and Musavi, uh, were certainly part and parcel of the Islamic Republic and of the establishment there. Um, Ahmadinejad was running as kind of a right-wing populist. Um, he was full of fiery rhetoric against the United States and in support of the Palestinians, etc., etc. Now, he didn't actually do anything for the Palestinians, but he was full of fiery rhetoric about it. And his whole questioning of the Holocaust, which was really Holocaust denial, the guy is very smart. He's not, like, stupid or making a lot of stumbling errors. He calculated that he could appeal to a right-wing, xenophobic um, population, both inside Iran and in the wider uh, Muslim world, by being not only anti-Zionist, but by being anti-Jewish. Uh, and that's what he was playing to. 
uh, and to some extent that, that uh, got him some support, I think particularly outside of Iran. Uh, but he, so he had a very populist uh, international policy, a lot of talk about opposing imperialism and solidarity with Venezuela and so on and so forth, uh, good relations with Russia and so on. Um, and at the same time, domestically, he was um, providing all these subsidies that I mentioned just a moment ago. Uh, the reformist candidates uh, hit on the issues of repression and the lack of individual freedoms. They hit on the issue of um, the high inflation. Um, and they talked about trying to um, sell off more of the state-owned uh, enterprises. Ahmadinejad had been in the process of selling off state-owned enterprises as well, so that wasn't like a big issue of dispute. And when you looked at it in terms of the actual campaign, uh, there was not huge differences in, amongst the candidates. They were all running within support for the Islamic system and all of the problems that it has. But Musavi was able to mobilize a lot of support because he wasn't Ahmadinejad. Think George Bush, and think of how many people in this country would have voted for anybody to get rid of George Bush. Well, there was a similar kind of sentiment uh, in, in Iran. Um, so Musavi was supported by a sector of the ruling elite that included people like Hashemi Rafsanjani, the former president, multi-millionaire, corrupt politician, very powerful, has his own independent base. Um, uh, he supported him for his own reasons. Ahmadinejad had particularly strong support among the Revolutionary Guard, the Basiji, the militia that I mentioned a moment ago, among the, um, uh, uh, the ultra-right wing of the clerics. And what one wing of the ruling class saw basically a shift away from their traditional base of power and the clerics that supported them to this basically military, uh, pro-military elite. And to keep in mind in, in Iran, the military are also big mega businessmen because the Revolutionary Guards run the import-export business, they run the airports, the ports, they're on the take, they run uh, a lot of the industry, the oil industry, etc. So these guys are not simply military officers living in barracks, they are multi-millionaires themselves who have a vested interest in staying in power. And they were backing Ahmadinejad. Um, so some people on the American left uh, get confused by the infighting in Iran, either because they don't know much about it or they're confused, and they think that somehow Ahmadinejad is an anti-imperialist, and the Musafi forces were neo neoliberals. Uh, and I've seen that argument among uh, some uh, on the web and, and elsewhere. People who really should know better. Uh, nothing could be farther from the truth. And to the extent that Ahmadinejad has you know, differences with the United States, it's not because he's an anti-imperialist. It's, you know, you have right-wingers around the world who have differences with the United States. That doesn't make them suddenly uh, anti-imperialist. Um, think of somebody like Pat Buchanan. Remember him? Okay, so Pat Buchanan is a right-wing nationalist and right-wing populist. And he has a certain support among working people. Why? We, I oppose the big corporations. You know, the working man is not getting a square deal in this country. Who's the problem? It's the Mexicans who are taking your jobs, right? That's Pat Buchanan. And, and then people who want to have abortions, etc. So you take the anger that working people have and you try and channel it in a right-wing direction. That's Ahmadinejad. He's Iran's Pat Buchanan. You're listening to freelance reporter and author Reese Ehrlich. Today's show, Eyewitness Iran. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, after the elections, we all woke up Saturday morning. Well, a lot of people stayed up really late. I, I never did get used to the Iranian schedule. You know, I got there at 3 in the morning, and, 
and I it was continually off uh, off kilter from that day forward. Uh, a lot of people stayed up late at night. Um, I got up early in the morning, jumped on the web, and was watching BBC and others. And um, all of a sudden, Ahmadinejad had won nearly two thirds of the vote, sixty-three percent, and nobody could believe it. It was it was impossible. And on a gut level, people understood that something funny had happened. And then in later in later events, proved it to be the case. And what people said immediately uh, upon waking up, upon hearing the news, they said it was it was a coup d'état, as a velvet coup d'état. Uh, it's a takeoff, you know, about the velvet revolutions in Eastern Europe, basically pro-U.S. Uh, uprisings that overthrew whoever was in power to bring in pro-U.S. governments. Well, this was a velvet coup d'état. It's a play on that. That is, that it was by the right wingers taking power uh, through the velvet type of, uh, of coup. Um, the proof of the, the election being uh, fixed came out in the, in the weeks afterwards. Uh, the Musavi forces had planned ahead of time to combat what they thought was going to be vote fraud. That was public knowledge ahead of time. So they had people who were going to go out to the different voting polling places and with their cell phones send in text messages back to the headquarters so there would be an independent count. Uh, separate from what the government did. So what did the government do? They shut down the entire country's text messaging system for the day. Can, you can imagine, right, uh, uh, what, what that's involved, but they did it. Uh, they banned uh, reformist uh, poll watchers from getting to certain polls. We now know that they printed up, every ballot is supposed to be, you know, registered numbers, etc., so you can keep track of it and avoid ballot box stuffing. Well, they just printed lots of extra blank ballots, uh, which then got stuffed into the... Um, in the ballot boxes. And then there was just massive miscounting. The people in charge of the counting are the very same people who were all pro Ahmadinejad. So there was no pretense of, of uh, neutrality. And, and uh, two professors um, up in Scotland uh, did a, uh, from Chatham House, did a study when they actually looked over in detail over the official vote results. And they pointed out that um, for Ahmadinejad to have uh, sustained his massive victory, in one-third of Iran's provinces, he would have had to have carried all his supporters, all new voters, all voters who previously had voted for centrists, and about 44% of the previous reformist voters. A physical impossibility. Uh, everybody uh, is quite sure that the new voters who came out came out precisely from the disillusioned people who hadn't voted before because they didn't like the rigged system as it existed before. So the result of this vote fraud is, is really a significant shift in Iran because Iran has never had fair and democratic elections. That was clear from the beginning. The supreme leader, Khamenei, has dictatorial powers under the Constitution. He can overrule anything that the president does, anything that the parliament does. The Guardian Council is this group of bullahs who determine who can run for office, including who can run for president. They just, by sheer coincidence, never allowed a woman to run for office, for example. They can take uh, sitting members of parliament who've already been elected and already been passed by them and suddenly say they're un-Islamic and not allow them to run again. So there's nothing close to democracy in Iran before. But at least the elections were competitive. That is, once the candidates were decided and they were within a fairly narrow range within the Islamic system, there was competitive elections and whoever got the most votes won. Well, that's now changed. It doesn't matter how many votes you got, <laughs> uh, because uh, they're basically going to rig the elections. It started in 2005 when Karabi uh, was narrowly edged out by Ahmadinejad. He said there had been vote fraud at the time, but he didn't pursue it. What's very significant this time 
is the mass demonstrations that came out and the fact that they're continuing to push uh, for a change uh, a vote investigation. So um, uh, in the days after the election, upwards of a million people around Iran uh, came out into the streets demonstrating, uh, many times in silent uh, protest. It shook the ruling elite in Iran to its very core. They had no idea that this was going to happen. By the way, neither did the CIA or the British intelligence or anybody else, for those who think this is all a plot uh, you know, by the CIA. Nobody, nobody was controlling those demonstrations. Nobody. Musavi wasn't. Um, the Iraq, certainly the Iranian government wasn't, and neither were any foreign powers. Uh, basically, what happened, what came out initially is lots of people coming out to protest the vote fraud. Uh, it's quickly morphed into a much deeper and much wider movement. And the core of supporters of those middle-class folks that I talked about before were joined by workers and farmers and small business people and religious, the devout, you know, like mullahs with their turbans and women in full chadors. So it became a multi-class movement, and it went well beyond the issue of um, vote fraud and into the whole issue of whether the, the system itself was legitimate. And from my interviews before and after, and from having talked to a lot of people on the streets, um, opinion is split. There are some people who want to see significant reforms, but keep an Islamic government. They think the idea of keeping religion and politics is legitimate. It's the way it's being carried out today in Iran is wrong. And then there are people who say the whole system is wrong. We need to go back to a parliamentary system, a genuine parliamentary system, where religion and politics are separated something back to what they had uh, under Mossadegh. You may remember, if you know anything about Iranian history, there was actually the one time in Iranian history when there was genuine democracy, where there was a parliamentary elections, where there was freedom of religion, where there was freedom for unions to organize and freedom for political parties. Genuine freedom of the press was around 1950, 51, 52, 53 in that period under Mossadegh. And what did the US do, of course? They overthrew him uh, and installed a dictatorship part of spreading democracy around the world. Most Americans have never heard of that, uh, or if they have, they've forgotten about it. Every Iranian knows that, along with the American shooting down of the Iranian airliner uh, in 1988, and a whole series of things that kind of hit the memory warp uh, in the United States. Um, so for a week, there were huge demonstrations. They were growing. Uh, that's when Khamenei gave his Friday speech. Uh, I watched it. It was on CNN International. I doubt they ran it here, but internationally they ran the whole speech. Um, basically, it was saying, this is it. The elections were legit. Go back to your homes and stop protesting. People didn't stop protesting. And that's when the repression got really, really bad. It, it had started even before. Uh, but everything from beating up people in the streets to these Basiji going into um, university uh, dormitories and... and uh, picking students at random and beating them up and disappearing them. In total, official figures say that 20 people have been killed and uh, 2,500 have been arrested with uh, 500 still in jail. Those are the official figures. In reality, it's probably much higher. Uh, we don't know, we, we may never know, but certainly human rights groups have been saying hundreds have hundreds killed and um, lots of people are being disappeared. Uh, but it hasn't stopped the movement. This is what's really interesting. In 1999, students demonstrated and went out into the streets and um, were brutally repressed, but it never took on the character of what we're seeing today. The other sectors of society didn't join, and the ruling elite in Iran kind of came together and opposed the students and did not oppose the repression. 
it's different now. So uh, prior to the elections, if 100 women got together for a women's rights demonstration, that was a pretty big deal in Tehran. Now there's regularly hundreds of people gathering. They're often dispersed and beat up by the police, but it's, it's much bigger in scope. And today was the most interesting of all, of all. I don't know, again, if you've had a chance to uh, follow the news. There's Friday prayers every Friday at the uh, Tehran University. And the opposition forces, usually it's filled with these right-wing, um, off-duty Basijian Revolutionary Guards and others. I've been to it a number of times uh, over the years. And it's, uh, some mullah comes and says something really boring, and, and, and they chant death to America, and, and everybody goes home, right? <laughs> you've, you've been there, I can tell. All right, so um, the, uh, this time, the opposition forces decided to go to the Friday press, which is very daring. It'd be, I don't know, what would be the equivalent? It'd be like going to uh, Crawford, Texas, in large numbers, you know, and confronting the Bush supporters head on, right? So they went, and they brought green prayer mats, and, and you know, green, again, the color of the, of the reformists, um, and they started uh, chanting uh, um, death to the dictator. Now, you don't do that in Iran, and you don't, definitely don't do it in Friday prayers. Uh, but they did. They're very gutsy. And so thousands and thousands of people showed up. And, and it was a contradiction for the regime because you can't attack people at Friday prayers. <laughs> you know, I mean, you just don't do that, right? So they had to wait until afterwards to attack them. So, uh, or they attacked them on the way in, right? But you can't actually attack them while they're sitting there, you know, at the Friday prayers. So this movement is way stronger than anybody could have predicted. Uh, uh, certainly anybody that I know. If you knew somebody who was predicting all this, please let me know. I'd like to read their stuff. But I think it caught everybody by surprise, including a lot of people in Iran. And it's caused this huge fissure within the ruling elite. So one of the, the main speaker at today's Friday prayers was Raf Sanjani. And I've seen Raf Sanjani speak before, and he's really boring. Okay. But today, he, he came out saying basically that the, uh, you know, questioning the elections. Uh, questioning Khamenei not by name, and, and gave a pretty fiery speech, a lot at the urging of the of the uh, people in the audience. Um, so they're not backing down, and Mousavi is not backing down. Uh, and you compare this to 1999 when Khatami was in power, who was probably politically a better person than Mousavi in terms of what he stood for, but he was gutless. And so when the 1999 student demonstrations took place, he backed down in the face of this repression from the right wing and all the pressure against him. And Mousavi uh, is, is standing up. He's still saying there have to be a recount of the elections. He hasn't backed down on this. So we're in uncharted territory here, folks. Nobody knows exactly what's going to happen. They're throwing every piece of repression they can uh, at the demonstrators, and they're not, it's not cowing them. Uh, at night, people go out on rooftops and shout, Allah Akbar, you know, God is great, which is what they used to do during the time of the Shah, to show opposition to the Shah. And, you know, there's a tradition in Shia uh, Islam... Uh, 40 days after someone is killed, right, is, uh, someone is martyred, you hold more demonstrations. Uh, that was done by the revolutionary forces in 1979 against the Shah, when the Shah's forces had killed students and others. 40 days later, they came back for a bigger demonstration. That's the plan to do that again in Iran. And I think what's different this time is that because there is this fissure among very leading clerics uh, in Iran, it's not clear how long this military elite that has seized power will be able to sustain itself. You're listening to freelance reporter and author Reese Ehrlich. Today's show, Eyewitness Iran. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, 
turning just for a second to halfway around the world into, into Washington, it was really interesting, especially when I came back to the United States, to watch the debate in Washington, because it's, you know, it's like spoiled kids. It's all about me. You know, it's like, I'm, I'm the real supporter of Iran. Oh, you're not supporting Iran enough. You know, this is from the right-wing Republicans who just a couple weeks ago wanted to bomb Iran, right? So they're saying, oh, I'm really the supporter of Iran. And Obama, he's not strong enough in supporting the people of Iran. You know, total hypocrisy. I mean, hypocrisy, thy name is Republican Party. Uh, and Bush, uh, sorry, uh, Obama... How long have I been attacking the president, right? Obama faced a genuinely difficult situation because if the right-wingers wanted him to denounce Ahmadinejad and, and uh, in, in the context of Washington, supporting the people of Iran means more sanctions, more military threats, right? This, this is being tough on Iran, right? Although nobody in Iran wants to have that, whether they're reformists or Ahmadinejad supporters. Um, and on the other hand, if he did nothing, then it would appear like he was being soft on Ahmadinejad. So he's had a very difficult uh, road, road to maneuver. Um, and I think, on, well, I have some criticisms around that. I certainly have lots of criticisms about Obama's policies in Afghanistan and Iraq and, and uh, uh, in Pakistan, lots of the Honduras, you name it, uh, lots of things that he's done wrong. On this one, he's you know, negotiated a very difficult road. Uh, basically, the U.S. is not in any position to do anything about what's going on in Iran. And it shouldn't be. And it shouldn't. The U.S. should just keep its hands off and let the people of Iran proceed to determine their own future. That's the best thing that the U.S. do. It shouldn't be out there trying to overthrow the government like Bush was. You know, Bush had a whole policy of trying to, um, and Clinton before him, uh, to uh, use ethnic minorities and others, use the discontent in Iran with the government to overthrow it and try to bring a pro-U.S. government to power in Iran. That's been the U.S. plan for a long time. And as it is, Ahmadinejad, in, uh, immediately, as soon as the big demonstration started happening, he blamed them on the United States and on Britain. Britain is even a bigger enemy than the United States in Iran because of the various uh, colonial history there, etc. So, and suddenly the BBC was all at fault, you know, and, and they even arrested a BBC reporter, and they arrested members of you know, the British uh, uh, embassy staff uh, for supposedly organizing it. And, you know, it is, it's exactly like what Bush did after 9-11, which is um, we are going to um, uh, blame the outsiders. You know, it's the outside terrorists uh, and we've got, and that, and that justifies us arresting people without trial and torturing and, and uh, extraordinary rendition because we're fighting the, you know, the terrorist threat of all these these outsiders. And oh yeah, and Saddam Hussein too, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, Ahmadinejad is using taking a leaf out of Bush's uh, playbook on that one and blaming the outside forces for something that is a, a domestic problem. Um, I think there is things that people in the United States can do. Uh, it's just that the U.S. government shouldn't be involved. Uh, we should be showing our people-to-people uh, -people solidarity. The people of Iran watch and see, and they, and they have access, although it's, it's less and less now, but they do have access to international sources of news. Um, a lot of people in Iran watch satellite TV, and the BBC and Voice of America both have Farsi language uh, broadcasts that are quite popular. By the way, in Iran, a satellite dish costs about 100 bucks, and there's no monthly fee because it's all pirated. So it's, it's very accessible, including to working people, right? Uh, and you've got like 500 channels, about 480 of which are like belly dancing girls from somewhere in an uh, undisclosed country in, in the Middle East. 
I know because I flipped through all 500 channels on that. And, um, right, it's the guy, you know, call me, my name is Fatima or something. I don't, anyway, but there are some actual, there are some actual serious um, news channels uh, on, on satellite, and people can get a lot of their news unfiltered by the government. And then there was, um, not unrestricted, but there was widespread access to the internet, uh, although lots of sites were blocked, and including the Dallas Morning News that I was writing for and others. You know, I'd go online, I couldn't even get, get access to, to lots of sites. But people, had, they had workarounds or various ways you could get to it. Now, since the crackdown, among, they've, they've tried blocking the uh, satellite TV stations, they continue to periodically block the use of uh, text messaging, and they slowed down the broadband um, access in the entire country so that it's much more difficult to get emails and much more difficult to download video and audio, which was a, a way that a lot of people were getting their information. But people are still able to, to be in touch with the outside world. And they appreciate support. Now, uh, I was, um, when I had to leave Iran, I, I only had a 10-day visa uh, because that's how long they give you, and they we're not renewing it for foreign. The last thing they wanted was more foreign journalists staying longer. So basically, you had to get out of town. And so when it came time for me to go, I was going to fly from Tehran to Erbil, which is in Iraqi Kurdistan, right? And they canceled the flight. So now I got a real problem, which is how do I get out of? I have to get out of Iran by such a such such a date. Otherwise, I may not leave for quite some time, right? So um, I got a hold of a travel agent. This is. Not to worry, Reese. We'll get you on a plane to Urumia, and then from there you'll take a bus to Erbil. And I go, where? <laughs> I had never heard of Urumia, right? It's a small town in the northwest of Iran. Uh, apparently quite a beautiful beach town, in the, I'm told. I didn't get to see any of it. Um, so I get on a plane, I, I get up there, and then, and it was actually turned into an incredible adventure because I went through Iranian Kurdistan, which is very hard... It, very few Americans get up that way. Um, and uh, there were like internal checkpoints and you could tell people, you know, the Kurdish people have a very distinct dress and uh, language and so on. So I could tell immediately when I was in, in Kurdistan. And it was very funny because the, the Revolutionary Guards would come through at the checkpoints and they would, uh, there was all Iraqi Kurds and Iranian Kurds. That was it, the whole bus. There was like only about half a dozen of us. And I kind of looked Iranian, as you might have noticed. And so he comes by, he goes, passport. And so I start looking for my passport, and I, I'm, I'm fumbling around. So he goes to the people behind me. It was an Iraqi Kurdish family. There was some dispute, and they didn't speak Farsi very well. And he's yelling, and he grabs all their passports. He doesn't even bother to ask for my passport, right? <laughs> all right, because I would, might still be there as far as I can tell, right? So that happens. At the, I'm, I'm, I just mumble and bother about it. Right. So, so long as I don't have to say anything for any length of time, you know, I'm fine. And uh, finally we get to the border, we wind our way up into the Kandil Mountains, which is really quite beautiful. It's the mountain range that's separate, or that kind of goes over in part of, uh, it's through Iraqi and Iranian Kurdistan. Uh, and I had been there previously on my last trip from the Iraqi side, but I had never come at it from the Iranian side. And then we get to the um, uh, border crossing. And it, it's a bus full of people, and everybody gets through, and uh, they're home, they see my American passport, and, you know, uh, they go, basically, he said, Kurdi, do you speak Kurdish? And I said, no. He said, Farsi? I said, no. I said, English? <laughs> no, sit down. All right, that was his, that was his full knowledge of English. And, uh, you know, uh, Iranians um, get hassled at U.S. 
border crossings and airports all the time. So they have a policy now, I think, basically of harassing any American. And this was their chance, right? So now, remember, I had been there exactly 10 days, and this is all stamped in my passport. So I, I saw them take my passport, and they go into another office, and there's some higher-up guard, and he's going, you know, he counts off on his fingers, and it comes out to 10. And I said, you know, and I'm doing all I can with sound, you know, watch, bus, 10 days, you know. None of it is, I waited an hour. It wasn't bad enough for me, but the whole bus was held up for an hour. Finally, they were closing down the passport office. Like, everybody had been through, and they were going to leave me there. Some, poor, some guy took pity on me, took me across there, it's um, like a uh, small highway. And they took me across to the other side where people coming in to Iran are, come in, right? So I was on the, on the lane leaving. They took me across the street to where you come in from Iraq into Iran. And there was my passport sitting at a desk with some schmuck, pardon my Farsi, <laughs> sitting there just doing nothing. Finally, I'm going, eh, my passport, you know, bus, the same routine, suit down. So finally, he, <laughs> And some other guy comes over, and I see him going through the same paneling. Uh, they were really hoping that it would come up 11, right? But it comes up 10 again. So finally, he hands me my passport. He says, welcome to Iran. So, because he, that's what he does. That's you know, he's, His side is to let people into Iran. I finally, I get, in, I get into Iraq. I won't even tell you about that. I didn't have a visa to get into Iraq either. But anyway, that was, no, actually, they were, were very helpful and stamped me, sent my visa, let me right in. And I was in, I never thought I was going to be really, really thankful to get into Iraq. <laughs> so, uh, well, we'll leave it at that. We'll open up for questions. Thanks so much. Yes, sir. Well, I'm very concerned that we really need to engage with Iran, the Iranian government, whoever the government is, and any delay in engaging works to the advantage of those who would push us into an attack to stop the Iranian nuclear development. So even a policy by the United States of, of just standing off and encouraging people to people, while good on that, on that level, seems to me could potentially be disastrous in the long term for avoiding an attack on Iran. So how, how, how do you suggest we handle that? Yeah. No, no, it's a good question, and, and it's very complicated. I mean, at this very moment, the best, if I was somehow, I was president, you were president of the United States, and we made overtures to Iran, and we said, look, everything we've done up till now has been wrong. I'm taking the nuclear thing off the table. I'm taking the military attacks off the table. I'm going to lift all the sanctions. I'm going to return all the seized territory, the money that the U.S. has seized from Iran. It just went down a whole list of things. Right now, given the situation in Iran, the, you wouldn't get a positive response. I'm just saying right now, at this very moment, the Iranians are so consumed with what the, what's going on, they're not, they're not going to respond. The U.S., but let's look a few months down the line. This is not going to last forever. Um, of course the U.S. should open up an embassy in Iran. Of course we should be negotiating with them. We should stop all the phony demands. It's, uh, the general policy of the U.S. towards Iran has been exactly like it was towards Iraq under Saddam Hussein, which is that we want to get rid of you, so let's find the reasons that we can come up with. Oh, you're, you're building a nuclear bomb. They're not building a nuclear bomb. The IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, has never said that they have a nuclear weapons program. But we just make it up, and then we terrify people, and then that gives Israel an excuse to claim that they're going to bomb them, etc. So all of that stuff has to be taken off the table so that you can even start to have normal relations. The problem is right now, at this, at this very moment today, um, it, it's too unstable in Iran. There's nothing, there's, it, it wouldn't happen. But for sure, as things go down, the U.S. should change its policy.
Did everybody hear the question? Yeah. Basically, how are people communicating given all this shutting down of the text messaging, et cetera, et cetera? Well, I'll tell you one way that it's not happening is Twitter. That, that was a myth spread particularly by CNN and, and others in the media. I mean, some, there's a small number of people using Twitter, but that it is not a Twitter revolution. People are doing it the old-fashioned way. They're, you know, cell phones and fax machines and landlines and uh, networks of friends. And, uh, you know, it is so widespread, the sentiment is so great against the government that in those circumstances you can use all kinds of what would now be considered old technology um, to do it because the word spreads by word of mouth very quickly. And kid, you know, uh, parents are taking their kids and kids are taking their parents and you know, it's a multi-generational, multi-class movement. Um, and uh, it reminds me a lot of uh, the anti-Vietnam, at the height of the anti-Vietnam War movement where you had phone trees to alert people, for example. Don't you think for the U.S. government to have dialogue with Iran will actually legitimize an oppressive dictatorship and why should the people of Iran rise up against their own government if other governments in the world are accepting them as a real government? Yeah, that's a real problem. Um, and that's why I was trying to explain the difficulties that um, any president would face right now. Because on the one hand, um, the U.S. has had a completely wrong policy towards Iran. And it's not as if, I don't know, somehow there was a recount and Musavi actually came to power. Musavi is not, or anybody else that comes to power in Iran, is not going to end the nuclear power program. They're not going to stop the aid to Hamas and Hezbollah and all the issues that the U.S. The people in Iran are not concerned about the issues that the U.S. makes a big deal about. That contradiction still exists. So the U.S. has to change its policy. But the timing on when it would go to actually negotiate or try and change, even, even if, and the U.S. is not about to change its policy, it's going to keep, Obama has made it clear he has all the same wrong policies on Iran that Bush did, with the exception, possible exception, of whether they're actively trying to overthrow the government in Iran. That's not clear to me. But the, certainly on all the, the hot button issues. And if they go in to negotiate, uh, it could give legitimacy to the Ahmadinejad government. So I'd be an advocate of changing U.S. policy, but like I said, I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, there's going to be any uh, uh, dialogue or negotiations that are, have any meaning in this immediate short term. You're listening to freelance reporter and author Reese Ehrlich. Today's show, Eyewitness Iran. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. I was a little surprised to hear you associate the idea of Holocaust denial with Ahmadinejad. And the reason I say that is because I thought it was shown a while ago uh, to be a mistranslation of what Ahmadinejad was actually saying. That what he was saying was that um, he was denying the Holocaust as a justification for stealing Palestinian land. That if you're going to steal anybody's land, steal the land of the people who are responsible for the Holocaust, not the innocent Palestinians. So why present the, continue to present this idea of Holocaust denial and associate well, that with Because he did. <laughs> he made two points, and he did it on numerous occasions. Um, he said, and this is a legitimate point that the Palestinians themselves make, which is, if the Holocaust happened, that was something that happened in Europe. Why do you take it out of the Palestinians? And the existence of the Holocaust is no excuse for Israelis taking over Palestinian land. That's absolutely true. I agree with that. But that's not all he said. He went on to say, there, the historical record is not clear. I have, there, there, the, it's not clear that the Holocaust happened or that it happened in the way that they said. We need more study. 
Now, it reminds me of the creationists who say, uh, well, you know, uh, uh, the theory of evolution is a, it's a theory. We need more study about that. What they're really saying is, I believe in creationism. And that's what uh, Ahmadinejad's position is. And, and in fact, he was criticized by Kamrabi during the campaign for taking that stand for denying the Holocaust. So he is, as I said before, he's not just anti-Zionist, he's anti-Jewish. And, and, that, and that actually aids the Israelis, as far as I'm concerned. You know, the Israeli government was thrilled with Ahmadinejad's victory in the opening days. Right? You know that. They all, why? Because he's such an easy target. If Musavi won, then he's not the outspoken anti-Jewish uh, spokesman for the world. It would make their job of bombing Iran harder. So they actually loved the idea initially that Ahmadinejad had won. Something to think about. Yes, sir. A couple of uh, former members of uh, Bush's National Security Council recently said that the covert operation that started uh, under Bush has not stopped under Obama. Has not stopped. Has not stopped. So the $400 million talks that possibly is aiding groups, separatist groups, or maybe even terrorist activities in Iran, are, uh, might be still um, alive and um, managed. That could be, and I honestly don't know. That's something I studied quite a bit and I wrote about in my book in detail. The uh, U.S. under Bush was certainly supporting Pijak, which is a, uh, it's a, uh, you guys know who it is, some of you know who it is, but anyway, uh, it's a uh, Iranian Kurdish group that's affiliated with the PKK, the uh, Kurdistan Workers Party, that is in a big fight in Turkey, right? They have a branch that, uh, uh, is supposedly fighting to liberate Iranian Kurdistan. They were being armed and trained by the United States at the time when I wrote my book. They, from superficial indications that I've seen with interviews from them, that may have stopped. The Baluchistan is another part of Iran on the far western part over by the Pakistani border. There's a Baluchist separatist group called Jondala, which recently blown up some buildings and killed some people there. Uh, they have a history of terrorist activities. They had been supported by the United States. Uh, whether they are still supported by the United States, I simply don't know. It's, is it possible? Absolutely. Because a lot of this stuff, you know, that's done by the Pentagon and the CIA goes over from one administration to another. It doesn't really matter who's in power. But I, I would want to see actual, some indications that that is happening. But it, it's a danger. What I don't think is that the mass demonstrations in Tehran and the other big cities were being manipulated by the ISIS. Some people take that to the, you know, come to that conclusion. I, don't, I simply don't think that's accurate. As a reporter, since after the uh, election, most of the foreign reports were prevented from getting into the areas that the report. How much do you think that impacted the uh, situation uh, overall? Did it make it worse for the, the news getting out or make it better or more? Make, make it better or worse for the people in Iran? Or? Yeah, in terms of uh, getting their voice out. Well, I don't, I, I think it was it was bad. Clearly, I mean, I'm a reporter. I don't like being thrown out of countries <laughs> on a very personal level, right? And clearly the government did it for the same reason the U.S. Uh, goes after reporters here when it doesn't like them and kicks out and, and bombed Al Jazeera in uh, uh, Afghanistan and so on. Uh, when you don't like the coverage, you want to get rid of the, rep the reporters. And Ahmadinejad took it even a step forward by actually blaming the foreign reporters for having organized the dissent. That was a new one. 
Right? Like I can see these BBC reporters out there in the streets chanting, you know, yeah. death to the dictator. Ah, ah, yeah. Okay. Um, now, what impact it has, you know, the people, these demonstrators in Iran are incredibly resilient. Is it better to be able to go home and watch on satellite TV what's been going on in parts of the city you couldn't get to? Of course. But it's not decisive because people are still out there demonstrating and word gets out anyway. So it hurts, but it's, um, you know, people are, are quite resilient. You know, there was a time when people organized big demonstrations and there was no TV at all, you know, and no telephones. Somehow they managed to do it. Yes. Two questions. First one is, uh, you talk about those besieges and their bosses and uh, the economic power they have, mm -hmm. which is a real issue with their, who are these people? And the question is that you never talked about military, relationship of military to those. Those are paramilitary groups. I'm talking about the Revolutionary Guard. That's right. The Revolutionary Guard is not a normal military. What's the role of, uh, during your experience or talking to the people, what is the role of military, or how do they look at the whole picture, number one? Uh, two is, uh, do you see if they are the one controlling Ahmadinejad, or Ahmadinejad and the group, or is it that they are the one behind the scenes that are controlling what is happening? That's why I like coming to these events. That's a really good question. and um, I, uh, I'll, I'll give you my best opinion, but other people here might have their own opinions as well. Okay. Um, Again, for some background for, for some of the non-Iranian friends. Um, 1979 revolution takes place. The Shah had a, a military. The, the new uh, um, clerical elite that came to power was worried, didn't trust the old military. They formed the Revolutionary Guard. Revolutionary Guard was like a parallel military force that they could trust because they couldn't trust the old military. There still is a regular army, a conscript army in Iran. But the real power and the real military force lies with the Revolutionary Guard. At a certain point, we won't get into all the details, but at a certain point, in order to finance themselves, they started taking over businesses. You know, there's various parts of the military around the world who do this. They run businesses in order to fund their own activities. So uh, the oil industry and, and all of the ports and all of the airports, you know, uh, Imam Khomeini Airport was set up as a civilian institution. The day of the opening, President Khatami was there. The Revolutionary Guard marched in and took it over, literally seized it. And, now, and it's been running into this day. And so all the revenues from the airport, like airport taxes, and et cetera, et cetera, go to the Revolutionary Guard. And they're notoriously corrupt. And I, I write about this in my book. So in addition to the legal uh, money that comes in, they have uh, uh, bribes of all kinds. So you imagine if you're an exporter and you want to avoid paying uh, customs duties, you just pay off uh, somebody, uh, some Revolutionary Guard officer, and your, go your goods go right through. He makes a fortune and uh, the customs duties aren't uh, collected. Does the Revolutionary Guard uh, control Ahmadinejad or Ahmadinejad control the Revolutionary Guard? I'm not really sure. I'm not, I, I, I would be interested if people here have any inside information on that. There's certainly a symbiotic relationship there. He speaks to their needs. He speaks to their political views. They back him. Uh, you're quite right. The Basiji are a paramilitary force that are under the Revolutionary Guard, but they don't have the discipline and the arms, et cetera, et cetera, that the, the military does. Um, they were responsible for a lot of this vote fraud that took place. So the, obviously they had a, felt strongly that, uh, that they had to support him. Uh, well, I'll just stop there. Uh, yes, sir. Recent media reports report Israeli warships with uh, missiles, cruise missiles, et cetera, uh, heading toward the Iranian coast. Uh, 
given the, uh, the Carter Doctrine of the United States, in which is the policy, national policy of the United States, to control the Persian Gulf area as part of the national interest of the United States, uh, and, and becoming more, more aggressive in terms of bases and control in that region, what do you think the United States would do if, if the Israelis launched an attack against uh, Iranian uh, nuclear uh, research centers, even though they're embedded and they're, they're decentralized. Uh, do you think that it's possible the United States would stand by and allow, allow that in the sense of not backing up Israel in a, in a war? Because the Iranians are a much bigger country, have a better military than the Iraqis, and it will not, in my opinion, just roll over because the Israelis attack all their uh, research centers. Um, I think the, there's no way that Israel will attack Iran without the um, nod from the United States. Politically, they can't do it, and even if they're willing to risk it, because the United States is going to get blamed for it, whether they, regardless, right? Uh, but also, just from a strictly military standpoint, in order for Israeli planes to get into, you, have, you, you can't just send in a couple of missiles and a couple of planes. Uh, when the U.S. was contemplating, seriously contemplating bombing Iran in the fall of 07, Seymour Hersh wrote a really excellent article full of leaks from the Pentagon and the CIA. There was going to require multiple bombing runs, bunker buster bombs, uh, taking out of Revolutionary Guard uh, camps, because the, you can't just fly in and drop the bombs and nothing happens. You're going to get attacked. The Israelis don't have the kind of military force that they could do it on their own without getting the overfly rights over Iraq. And as of now and for the conceivable future, the U.S. controls the airspace over Iraq. So from both politically and a military standpoint, the Israelis could not do it without the permission of the United States. So if they attack, it would be with the understanding that the U.S. gave them the okay. And that's why when Biden made his statement recently, people are familiar with that, basically saying, uh, giving the nod to, to the Israelis, although that may or may not be official U.S. policy, it's very dangerous because it's as close as you're going to get to something like that. Um, I think the Israelis are threatening, and they're upping the, upping the threats uh, against Iran in order to pressure the United States to do it. That's been their plan all along. For them to do it unilaterally is, is quite dangerous. The United States, even under Bush, backed off from doing it. Why? Because, by the way, the Bush administration denied giving the, the additional arms to Israel to do it, even under, even under the, the neocons of Bush. Because we have... Uh, very aggressive uh, people in Washington, but they ain't crazy. Uh, and so what they realized is if Israel or the United States attacked Iran, the first thing that would happen was Hezbollah would attack Israel. The um, Hamas would be uh, have another uprising in um, Palestine. Uh, the, the world would be angry at the United States and Israel. It would cause all kinds of... So right now the United States is fighting three wars, and suddenly it would have four or five on its hands. And they're not prepared to do that, at least at the moment. Uh, I think there's a lot of bluster, um, a lot of threats. But in the short run, I don't think Israel or the United States is going to bomb Iran. Now, what happens further down the line, we'll, we'll talk again at my next talk. You've been listening to Reese Ehrlich. Today's show has been... Eyewitness Iran. Rhys Ehrlich reports regularly for CBC, ABC Australia, Radio Deutsche Welle, and National Public Radio. 
Reese Ehrlich first worked as a staff writer and research editor for Ramparts Magazine, published in San Francisco from 1963 to 1975. Reese Ehrlich is author of The Iran Agenda, The Real Story of U.S. Policy and the Middle East Crisis, and co-author of Target Iraq, What the News Media Didn't Tell You. His latest book is Dateline Havana, The Real Story of U.S. Policy and the Future of Cuba. Visit his website at www.reeseerlich.com. That's R-E-E-S-E-E-R-L-I-C-H dot C-O-M. Audio of today's program was provided by Paul George of the Peninsula Peace and Justice Center. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaro Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Or call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Fine.